Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. <laughs> Tim had a song called um, Relax. Been there, done that. If it's all the same with you. Popular. No one will ever Get know. what you deserve. Carlos Days. Raining. Face to face. Manage me. Won't you manage me? I'll give you 100%. <laughs> I love it. Another one called Secret Part of Me. Own Backyard. Thrill Seeker. Through the Years. No Remorse. Settle Down. Heart to Heart. Fall Around. Rise to the Occasion. In the Heat of the Moment. <laughs> I mean, they're all written, you know, written songs, lyrics and everything. And never recorded. I was writing songs that weren't being used by the band. We tried playing Fraction Too Much Friction and we tried a couple of the other things that I had lying around and, you know, it wasn't really working and... Um, that sort of entered a period for me where I was I was a bit stale with it. I mean, I'd been there since 1972. The Beatles only went for 10 years, you know. To, it was 10 years to 1982 when we did Time and Tide. So in a way for me, there was just a natural inbuilt clock, I think, that went off after about 10 years. And um, I was just looking for a way out. solo album is something that I've had in mind for quite a while. Tim Finn, talking in 1983. The band has taken up an awful lot of time and to get it to get split into the stage where it is now has meant pretty well full-time effort. However, we did allow ourselves quite a break this year and it immediately became apparent to me that bingo, this was the time to do it. Split Ends had been touring almost non-stop for four years by the time of their six-month break in 1983. Following a couple of 10th anniversary reunion shows with former Ends members at Sweetwaters and the Bowl of Brooklyn's, Tim took off to record his first solo album. Eddie Rayner built a home recording studio, and Noel Crombie spent time in another studio just playing about, with help from the other Ends. To Noel's amusement, the result of the recording session was released by Mushroom Records as a single. Well, there was some arrangement with Mushroom that you'll have to pay for it if we don't release it, sort of. So I just thought, oh, I don't care what I end up with, <laughs> stick it out, and I'm going to pay for it. People had some notion that I must be in the country and western, but it was more, actually much more an interest in novelty songs that brought about my voice keeps changing on me. Because my voice keeps Keeps changing on me. Oh. 
that was just dabbling and then it was actually having a bit of time to yourself for first time in a long time um, started building a car and you know just being at home a bit having a bit of a home life for a change Neil Finn spent part of the break writing songs for the next Split Ends album making demos with his four track cassette recorder at his home in Melbourne some songs like this one never made it further than the demo stage Over in Sydney at the Festival Recording Studios, Tim Finn was relishing the opportunity to record music with musicians from outside the Split End Circle. It was great to play with a different drummer, Ricky Fittar, who's an amazing drummer and had been with the Beach Boys, so he had a really good groove and a good pop sensibility. And, you know, it was a, a six weeks of not worrying and just having fun and enjoying, you know, whatever was coming up and not second-guessing anything. And it was really fast and really fun. And I didn't expect it to do that well, but it, it did. There's a fraction too much friction. There's a fraction too much friction. There's a fraction too much friction. Yeah, yeah. There's a fraction too much friction. Take a typical man for him with a typical woman. Expression of ill will, but when will hostilities 
the first single from Tim's Escapade album, was a massive radio and TV hit, quickly reaching the top 10 in Australia and New Zealand. At the same time, in June of 83, Split Ends reconvened in Sydney with Time and Tide producer Hugh Padgham to begin preparations for the next Ends album. Noel Crombie. I remember starting off thinking this would be great because Time and Tide was a really good album and the way I figured it we'd got better really in that time. But one of the things about the whole solo project sort of mentality that had crept in was that we basically lost sight of what being a band was a bit. Everyone had their own ideas and was a bit more pragmatic about it. And, you know, Tim had got his single away and I think he just thought he didn't really need a band, you know. We'd lost the unity, I think, at that point. I remember coming back to Conflicting Emotions, you know, with everyone having pretty good energy for it. Neil Finn. But and then we just got bogged down in the preparations for that album and how to conceive it. Griggs. Conflicting emotions was, uh, things were different, things were very different. Both Tim and Neil, I felt, came to the album with preconceptions. They were very affected by what other people were doing and where they wanted split ends to go and they had already had a picture of where it was going. And that was very different. At the heart of Conflicting Emotions was that we weren't a settled band. The balance had shifted and it wasn't a comfortable feeling. less involved in the preparations for that album than I was and I had a bunch of songs which I really felt pretty good about and to some extent I don't think they ended up being fulfilled very well on conflicting emotions for one reason or another and even Straight Old Line was a disappointment really. Straight Old Line, I like it, it's a good record but it ended up a lot more jazzy whereas when I wrote it it was like a gospel song and it was slow and I really wanted it to be kind of quite moody and kind of darker and so in a, in a lot of cases on that album, really, the songs I was most excited about felt like they weren't very well executed. This could be heaven, or this could be hell. Life could be falling down a bottomless well. I stumbled to the left, I stumbled to the right. Steinberger, that was. Yeah. You know those little ones, those little basses that got no body. 
everybody was using them around about that time. They had a unique, quite a unique sound. So I had great trouble holding the bass. I had to wedge it up so I could hold the bloody thing. Producer Hugh Padgham. There was a lot of new equipment just come out then, and this synthesizer that changed a lot of recordings at that time had come out called a Yamaha DX7. And I think Eddie was just mucking around on it, and he's just got this fantastic ability to do brilliant things. And, and on that song, it was emulating a guitar. After the Split Ends album sessions began, Tim Finn's solo album Escapade was released in Australasia. Manager Nathan Brenner. I thought it was a, a very good album. I was very excited by it and very successful, too successful. It turned into a, you know, no, it was, or I suppose originally even for Tim, he probably thought, oh, I'll just do this quick little album and then I'll get back to the, the ends, but nothing's quite that quick or simple and it became you know it started to have some success with it in Australia and New Zealand and I think even in a couple of places in Europe and so he was buoyed by that and in a way a little unfortunately for him in a way he probably would have had that been the sole focus probably would have gone and given it a really big push. played five live shows, which I, you know, they were all really amazing shows, I had a great band, um, but out of loyalty to the band and guilt in a way, I didn't push it any further than that, so there were a lot of compromises and the band were probably fed up with me at that stage. By the time he got back to see us, we were probably champing at the bit and a little bit impatient with the fact that it, it seemed to have taken his focus away for so long, and possibly some of the songs that ended up on that record might have been good split end songs, so you know, maybe he was a little under stopped when he got back. Tim's got a whole new circle of friends in Sydney, and that included Ricky Fatah, who was the producer of the Escapade album, and uh, he was being influenced by uh, them, and he believed that the best thing was for Split Ends to do a song like Beat It, like Michael Jackson, and that it all should be about machines and not about organic drumming, and that Noel isn't good enough and that let's use machines instead of Noel. We were listening to ABC and some of those English bands, and particularly Eddie was wanting to use a lot more of that program drumming and keyboards approach to songs. I think I was probably going with what Tim 
wanted to do, you know. Keyboardist and co-producer Eddie Rayner. There was a lot of drum box, so the band in a lot of ways had become redundant. You know, starting off a song with a drum box as opposed to starting off with a band, it's like you've made a decision to pretty much call the band superfluous, haven't you? I suppose I felt like any drummer does, you feel a bit threatened in the sense that somehow that kind of mechanical perfection is adequate, you know, it was just like sidestepping one of the processes which was getting rhythm tracks. And there's often, I mean, there'd always been a bit of impatience at that stage, which I've always found a bit strange, really, because it's what you build everything on, but it seems like everyone expects the drummer and maybe the bass player to get their stuff down immediately, and then they'll spend months sticking around. <laughs> As a bass player, I completely overplayed, I feel. I feel I was forced into overplaying because trying to make up for really duff drum tracks that really weren't making it, because they were probably drum machines half the time and messing around in that area. Conflicting emotions was the beginning of the end, without a doubt, and it was a very disappointing time for me. In a way, we were going further and further away from the way we'd made time and time. One, two, three, four. The band was definitely not the same band as it was previously. I mean, I can remember Nigel was very much a sort of rock in the band, and he was really upset to see that things weren't going as perhaps they ought to, and he was also, if I remember rightly, really quite paranoid. Well, I agree that I wasn't very happy, and I wasn't very comfortable with what was going on. It wasn't clear what anybody was really supposed to be doing. If there was ever a a point where I didn't belong in the band, it was probably that point. I think I felt lost in that album, and i and I'd be quite honest, looking around me, I, everybody else looked lost too. It was infectious. We weren't in a red studio, are <laughs> I think we were to start with, then we moved out of the red studio, I think. There was a huge rainstorm and the studio flooded. The entire studio flooded. Luckily, the two-inch tapes had been put away and they were undamaged. The studio was pretty much destroyed, actually and we had to leave and go and work in, at uh, EMI. We had Duran Duran playing down the corridor at five billion decibels. And the staff were all resigning because they couldn't stand being in there because it was so loud. In a way, Neil suffered from that album as much as anything because he had so many songs that weren't done justice to. But at the same time, it was probably Neil's fault because he wanted to use drum machine on a lot of those things.
Neil Finn. I, like everyone, was saying, well, there's certain songs that don't seem to work with Noel, and personally, I think everything that we used the drum machine on ended up sounding and feeling really naff. It just didn't feel soulful or like it had a heart to it for a band that was a great live band. You know, we really were a really good live band. It would have been better using Noel, no matter the feels be, but wobbly or whatever, would have been better. Tim Finn. And yet, you know, when, when it came time to do Message to My Girl, we brought in Ricky Fatah, who I'd been working with, so we were still interested in that organic sort of groove that you get from drums, you know, and so it wasn't black and white. We decided to bring Ricky in as a, an experiment, which I think worked very well for Message to My Girl, but at the time was probably not a very positive thing for the band in some ways. of writing I love you in a song at that point because it just seemed you just don't let yourself be exposed like that and I suppose also after years and years of being kind of a bit derisive about songs that were in the charts that were blatantly sentimental or um, I, we felt we had to cloak them in slightly obscure or clever kind of um, wordplay or, or whatever you know lest we be accused of being schlocky. But anyway, that matters far less to me now. In fact, I think really all it is, it's ever been about is if you believe it and you sing it as simple as it can be, then it sounds real and it sounds good and tough. It's only sentimental if you try and display an untruthful emotion, I think. Eddie had told me once, you know, I can take one of Neil's most commercial songs and I can ruin it. Manager Nathan Brenner. And he said it as if it was a joke, and I was appalled, but, you know. But I acknowledged the fact that in his era in Split Ends, he was most certainly one of the best keyboard players in the world. But at the same time, his perverse 
musical ideology and his influence, particularly with Hugh Padgham, eroded the creative and commercial integrity of Tim and Neil, I believe. And particularly on conflicting emotions where Neil wasn't that focused on the project because he had a child coming, uh, Eddie used that opportunity to influence the project to be a more uh, keyboard-based album, which it is, and which is why it was, was a failure. So Our day on that record was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I like the song, I, again, it was one of the ones that we used Drum Machine on and I don't find it very enjoyable to listen to now as a piece of music, but there again, I, you know, it's not for me just to write a song saying, whoopee, I'm going to have a kid, it's going to be great, I had to express doubts and insecurities about it. Nathan Brenner took what was meant to be a short break from Split End's management and travelled with another Down Under band to the United States. Men at Work, with their tales of fried-out combis and Vegemite sandwiches, were suddenly the biggest thing to hit America since sliced bread. For much of 1983, Nathan was to manage Split Ends via long distance. I needed a break between Split Ends and Men at Work. I decided to take a week off and I went to Acapulco, right? I actually asked to listen to stuff on the phone and what I heard on the phone made me very concerned. And when I came back, immediately went to the studio, spent two hours listening to it. What I heard on the album was a great deal of art and not very much commerce. And by this time, we needed a hit. We did, otherwise A&M would get really upset with us. And so what I heard is that there was one song that may be a hit and it was a ballad. I knew that the Americans wouldn't go for that. And I said that to the band. This isn't good enough. It's not going to do it for us. It's the weakest album. It wouldn't sell. 
and the band got on their high heels and said, no, we think it's fantastic. We think it's the best thing we've ever done. We think there are plenty of hits on it. Nathan, sorry, disagree with you. You go out there and get it released. We were all a bit unsure about the record because it had been a bit difficult, but we thought Message to My Girl was a pretty strong single and we thought Straight Old Line was a pretty strong single. In some ways they were, but I think that was a case of the atmosphere of the album and the band being not, you know, not things not feeling completely right and probably not the least us calling the album conflicting emotions. We shot ourselves in the foot. Former head of Mushroom Records, Michael Gidinski. The whole album had a very down tone, a very down cover, and but it had some beautiful songs on it. It was a great album, and it was a very, very successful album in Australia. Send a message to the brain. Two men climbing down opposite poles. The one with hair upon his face, sprouting like the weeds on his soul. The other is alone to himself. His brain is like a lump of steel. And they love to break each other up into tiny pieces. And it's I delivered to the record company. I said, look, I'll leave you with it for a week and I'll come back. And when I went back to A&M, A&M just said, there's not a single on the album and there's only one single and it's a ballad. It's going to cost us too much money to break it. And even if we break it, there's nothing to follow it up. Then I hear news back from Australia that our Australian record company has told uh, a lot of important people in the industry that uh, the album has been rejected by America and that we have to go back in the studio and record hits. The rock was setting in by this time. And then the American label began to say, well, you know, if you don't go back into the studio, it's going to be very hard for us to pay attention to Tim's album. And uh, I was uh, a little bit upset about that. And uh, I sent a telex to the band. And without my authority, while they're in New Zealand touring or something, they sent a telex to A&M, which was called the Frozen Chicken Telex which effectively says, don't treat us like frozen chickens. We're not frozen chickens. We've got artistic integrity and you can shove it up your ass. Something maybe not as, as, as direct as that, but it was certainly a telex that was an insult to the record company and put them offside. And that was done by the band themselves. And uh, considering that they're the people that feed us in terms of supplying our record budgets, it's a stupid thing to do. They threw Tim's album out they pull the independent promotion that I'd arranged. So we're in a situation now where we're getting into difficulties. Both Mushroom here and A&M wanted to play hardball. And the band was in no mood to play hardball, and we didn't. And as a result, it caused a lot of friction.
by this stage, I guess a lot of people internationally had given up on them. And look, um, there's a lot of bands from Australia and New Zealand that, and from England that have had everything going for them and for some reason or another have never cracked America. I mean, you look at Blur, you look at Robbie Williams now, you look at so many acts that you just don't know why. And it's, you know, it's very, um, uh, you know, it's pointless really being rhetorical and, you know, trying to sort of pinpoint it down more than perhaps just a bit of bad luck and uh, bad timing. Okay. Boogie away. Well, here we are in the studio, wishing a Merry Christmas to all of y'all. Yes, that's you, the friends of the ends. The best, the very best, the superlative, the maximizing, the intoxicating, the incredible, the exuberant and ever-present friends of the ends, the fan club of the century. Okay, we have the coolest woogie woogie band on the universe here playing for us tonight. Any minute now, please God, they will stop. And we can get down to something really groovy. In the meantime, we have to allow them the brief indulgence. That is, Eddie on the drums, can't you just tell? And Neil on guitar. Noel is sitting by, ready to help. Ever patient as usual. Unfortunately, Nigel has a stomach complaint tonight and can't be with us. But we know that you all wish he was here and that you all love him just the same. But let's give a collective groan of sympathy for Nigel. <laughs> Conflicting emotions! <laughs> Hello friends of the ends, this is Neil here. I'd like to thank you very, very much for all the cards and the letters and the booties and the teddy bears that we've received in the Finn family household for the last uh, two or three weeks since our lovable little boy Liam has been born. He's growing well, developing a fine shock of hair, has very long piano playing fingers and already knows the words too. There he goes. Just a, just a minute, Liam, just a minute. Won't be a sec, just got to change. Oh, it's too late for your baby, you're supposed to be looking after me. Yeah. Yes, there is, just goes to prove there's more than one baby in this band. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you very much, and uh, God, it's going to be good seeing you in concert. We've got a new drummer, friends. A new drummer in our midst. His name is Paul Hester, and he is a court jester. He is very funny, and he's going to make a bit of money. He's not a bad drummer, and he's not a bad strummer. And we're not going to put him on the guitar, because Neil is the star. Paul Hester is the new drummer. These drumming changes, I don't know. I don't know why they happen half the time. It's always people that don't play drums that are making these decisions. Yeah, well, we auditioned. We've only auditioned twice. Once was for a guitarist, and then we ended up piking out and using Neil, although that was a good move. But, I mean, yeah, we couldn't hack the audition process. And then we tried to audition drummers, and um, thank God Paul turned up one day. He'd come down, driven down from Sydney, and he was great straight away. We liked what he was doing, and the way he played was really simple, not too many cymbals. And, you know, he was funny, and he's just a great character, so it was brilliant. You know, he was the drummer we'd been looking for, but the only problem was we were about to break up. <laughs> I started off essentially my mother played the drums she was an old jazzer she could play the brushes quite well and she taught me how to swing Paul Hester so I started cutting my teeth in cover bands and learning how to sing and play drums and 
Then when I started getting more established original type bands, that served me well. I had a couple of bands back there. I played with Deck Chairs Overboard, had a bit of a release here and a few records. Um, then actually gave it away, moved to Sydney and gave it away and got to be pretty good friends with Rob Hurst, the drummer from Midnight Oil. And I just remember saying to Rob in, in sort of jesting to him one week and I said, look, Rob, I'm not going to play drums ever again unless, of course, some big band rings up and they want to offer me a, a, you know, an audition. I'll, I'll, I'll do that, but I'm not carrying my drums to gigs anymore, you know. <laughs> and um, I got a call one day from Neil Finn saying we were auditioning drummers for split ends and we wanted to know if you would like to come down and try out. One, two, three, four! When I went in and the first time I was sort of awestruck, you know, I was sort of like, gee, there's Eddie Rayner, oh, there's Noel Crombie, and oh my God, it's Nigel Griggs. And I couldn't believe, I just had so much fun playing split end songs with split ends. <laughs> For me, I just thought it was fantastic. There was a lot of good drummers came along, a lot of brilliant drummers actually, and um, but he, he just seemed to fit in like a glove as a, as a guy, as a personality. And he was really, really funny. I did two or three, maybe four auditions. And I kept getting called back and I kept thinking, gee whiz, they seem to be taking a long time to make their minds up. And So I kept doing it and then eventually the fourth time I went back, I took a little cassette player with me, a portable cassette, and I thought, no, I'm going get, to get this on tape. We had this ridiculous jam session and it always ends up who can be the fastest and who can go for the longest. And it was just some ridiculous jam that ended up with everybody playing 16s, like, you know, and everyone was just trying to go faster and everyone just started laughing and falling over and no one could, you know, we ended up Eddie Rayner, of course, won and he was the one left doing it. And, and I always remember laughing on the floor thinking, look, I must be in the band now, <laughs> you know. So I sort of got the tape out and said, now look, you buggers, am I in the band or what? You know, <laughs> and Eddie went, oh, well, I don't know. And what do you think? Shall we, will we, you know, like, <laughs> they did tell me then on that night, yes, oh, I was in the band. It certainly injected real life into us, I felt. He was, he was a perfect tonic, good drummer too. And it was, it was a case of having two drummers as, as much as, you know, it wasn't really a replacement thing, it was like having more options. Noel Crombie, the drummer for the past two and a half years, was now back on percussion. Well, it wasn't that fuss, because I, I enjoyed percussion and part of the thing of having someone else playing drums is, gives me that freedom to do that. had 17 days to teach me 25 songs and that was cramming that was interesting I learned a lot in that band about performing and respecting your songs and respecting the audience and respecting the gig those boys really showed me what it was all about Neil Finn the tour was good, it was good having some fresh blood and he was super enthusiastic but we were kind of pushing uphill a little bit at that point career wise because 
you know, just for instance, Molly, with the very first gig we ever did with Paul was in country town and Nathan in his eminent wisdom decided it would be good to bring Molly Meldrum down to our first gig, which was complete stupidity as a manager personnel, I think. And uh, we were pretty average, probably, but it was the first gig, you know, it was a big old barn of a place. And he went back on the countdown that weekend and said that Split Ends weren't very good and that Tim Finn solo was much better and it was just like, um, countdown at that time was pretty powerful. So we, we were kind of on a hiding to nothing a little bit on that record. I think we're, we're the most rhythmic we've ever been and uh, we've just done a short Australian tour to warm up, if you like, for New Zealand. So we're rearing to go. It's been too long, it really has. We, we need to play desperately. We need to sort of come back and show everybody our strengths again. When we got to Auckland, we checked into the hotel and they said, now, Paul, you've got to be down in the lobby in 25 minutes because there's a press conference. And I went up to my room and I was giggling in the lift and I thought they were winding me up. (laughs) This is a joke. And I didn't go down and I get this phone call saying, where are you? You know, we're going to start, you know, you better come down. So I went down. And I just remember sitting at this long table and there was this sign in front of me with my name on it. And I just thought, my goodness, they're serious. You really are doing a press conference. People are, oh, look at all these people. And, you know, I just had no idea of the extent of which split ends were held or regarded in New Zealand, really. You know, it was an eye-opener. It's a great way to visit New Zealand as the drummer of split ends. I highly recommend it. Get really looked after. One of the highlights of the tour, which is nearly all outside gigs, is expected to be next week's special performance in their hometown. The concert's part of Te Aumutu's centennial celebrations. are playing the final concert in their Kiakaha New Zealand tour at QE2 Park here in Christchurch tomorrow night. Interested in that, that Kiakaha, does that have special significance? Um, it does, yeah. It actually was the, the school motto of the school where I went to, Tiamatu College. Um, I hadn't even remembered the, the name for years and we were suddenly in the studio with a, um, a little machine that records sounds and plays them back. But anyway, we, we put this chant down, which just happened to be Kia Kaha, and it sent me off on a, an idea to write a song about about and for the people I used to go to school with. So it means ever be strong, doesn't it? It means ever be strong, yeah.
roots, man. You know, yeah. you've been watching that program on the telly lately, and lyrics especially, you know, if you don't acknowledge where you came from, your own immediate world, what else can you talk about? You know, everything else is abstraction, I reckon. It's your own family and your own background and your own life that you have to write about. Curious that the Australians probably claim you as their own now, do they? They, they? When you go round and tour Australia, I bet you're an Australian band to the to the people. When there. we're in the top ten, yeah. Yes. Yeah. How do you handle that? Well, we always re remind them when we're asked or when we sort of see it written down or something. It was like on the Rock Awards night in Australia recently last year. We won a, we won a few awards. It was a good night for us, and we made sure we wore our black tracksuits with the silver fern, you know, just to politely suggest to them that perhaps we're not Australian. But um. It's, it's a second home for us, but we, we never forget where we came from. We've had about 16 or 17 people through the band, so it's like a club that never quite stops, just keeps going on like a tree. You ever been tempted to pull out yourself, Tim? Oh, not really, no. I mean, there's always been fresh input from new members, really. It's kept it changing a lot. How have you kept your enthusiasm going over the years? Oh, I haven't had to really think about it. It's just been there. If it, if it wasn't there, naturally, I don't think I could do much about fostering it. because in hindsight everything was sort of slowly stagnating and grinding to a slow, miserable, wretched end. But I never really foresaw it actually stopping. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. 
Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.